exactly as predicted. Uh, now we're, uh, uh, the, the, the reading we just heard, um, if you, if you blinked, you may have missed it, but this is the good part of, uh, Lamentations. So I hope, I hope you did hear it. It's, it's not a very cheerful book, as you may have noticed if you've been tracking with us the last couple of weeks. It is, it, uh, it recounts the experiences of the people of God after the destruction of Jerusalem. So, Jerusalem was conquered by the by the neighboring empire of Babylon, and um, if you think you know if you've watched the TV and you see what's happening in Gaza or what's happened in uh, um, uh, Ukraine or or really any place else where there's been a war in in our time, you can imagine it was like that and then some. So uh, um, so whatever they went through, uh, the the writer doesn't give us as many details as we might get on TV, but, but he paints a pretty bleak picture nevertheless. So, so, um, so he's, he's wrestling with the question, how do I make sense of all this? What, you know, how, there, in the face of all of this horror and, 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 um, suffering, how can I make sense of what, what has happened? So, so that is the question that he's really wrestling with through the entire book. Um, how do I make suffering Makes sense. How how can I how can I figure this out? So that's the question he's been he's been looking at, and um, the way the way we we began back in chapter one is he did what what a lot of people would do. He said, "Well, the reason that we suffer is because God has judged us. We we committed sin, and therefore God judged us." But at the same time, if you were here, you may remember, and if you weren't, these are online, so you can you can catch up. Uh, online, but he said, you know, that's not a great, that's not a great answer. Um, and there, there's a bunch of different things we talked about during chapter one about reasons why that, that simple idea of, of sin, judgment, you know, straighten things out again, that that, that kind of picture of things isn't, isn't very good. And one of the reasons is it, is it prompts us to, to question the proportionality, right? If, if, you know, if I go to, you know, if I fail to go to the temple and I don't offer my sacrifices and then Babylon comes in and conquers the, the city and, and people starve and, and, you know, hundreds of, uh, or thousands of people die, um, in that conquest, is that proportional? Is that a fair response to what we've done wrong? So it raises lots of questions. And so, what, what we looked at the, the following week, last week, is we looked at, okay, well maybe it's not judgment, maybe, maybe there is no real explanation, maybe it's random. And what we saw last week is the, the perspective of the writer of Lamentations is no, not at all. It, it is anything but random. That there is a reason for this. The reason is not the Babylonians. The Babylonians were the tool, the instrument. But the reason is that God did this. God bears responsibility for everything that happens in the world, good and bad. And so, uh, that he com- rejects completely the idea that it's just random, random um, uh, bad things happening in the world. So, so um, today we're going to look at where he goes from there. So, so the question he's um, he's looking at is is okay. Well, if God is responsible, and if the suffering is so great, how can I how can I ask for help? If God is the one who did it, if God is the one who is responsible for what happened, then how can I go to God, the God who permitted all these things to happen? So that is the question he's going to wrestle with 
today in chapter three. And um, I mentioned that it's a small, it's a small, um, uh, the, the, the happy part, the, the, the enjoyable part of Lamentations. It, if you blinked, you might have missed it. And the reason for that isn't because it's unimportant. It's because of the way that people used to write in antiquity. So in ancient writing uh, from the, the Romans, the Greeks, and, and in, including uh, people in the Near East, uh, there was a structure that they used to, to uh, when they wrote things, um, which was which was um, it's kind of like a sandwich, and so the idea is you have you have layers and you put the important thing in the middle, right? So just like a just like a sandwich, uh, so this structure is used to kind of call attention to what's important, and we are now in the middle section of the book of Lamentations. So we've looked at one and two. We're looking at three today, and then in the next weeks we'll be looking at four and five. And so the purpose of the first and second, or a purpose of the first and second and fourth and fifth chapters is to draw our attention to that middle section. And I don't know if that's that's kind of not the way we do things today. Today we like to, to build up toward a conclusion. But um, some of you maybe you remember like high school English where your teacher told you, um, you know, first you tell them what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them. And then you tell them what you told them. So sometimes we do still put things in the middle, and it's kind of like that. So, so chapter three is a is the center. It's the it's the important part of the sandwich. And what we're going to see is that chapter three is a sandwich too. So it I, I we would see it better if I included all of the text, uh, but but it has three sections, and so um, we're going to be looking in particular at the middle section. So. Um, I included just enough of the of the outer two sections uh, to to give us some context, but but um, we're going to be focusing in on uh, verses nineteen through thirty nine. So so we begin uh, in in chapter three, verse one. The 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 speaker says this: I am someone who saw the suffering caused by God's angry rod. He drove me away, forced me to walk in darkness, not light. So, who is this person? Well. Um, if you if you remember from chapters one and two, there were two voices that that would appear back and forth in the text. One of them was was the observer, the person who's recording everything that's happened, and the other voice was a personified Jerusalem, so uh, called Lady Jerusalem or Lady Zion, who who talks about what has happened to the city um, as if it were to a person. So so if if the the Jerusalem is is one voice. This is a this is a, a, a new voice, a third voice. And if Jerusalem is everybody, this is anybody, any one person. So so um, he says, I'm somebody who saw the suffering caused by God's angry rod. So so he's a witness to it. And as as um, as he goes on, he'll talk about how he suffered because of it. So he uses this metaphor. He says, God's angry rod. And if you think of the the uh, Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, and his rod and his staff comfort me. So we know about the staff, right? That's the one with a little hook, and you do shepherdy things with that. What is the rod? The rod is basically a club. So if you think of like a baseball bat, so that's that's what a shepherd has these two things. And the reason for the rod is, you know, if a wolf or Whatever animal, you know, a predator comes into the fold and is trying to make off with one of the sheep, you start wailing on it with your club. That's, that's the idea. And what, what he's saying here is, this shepherd, this good shepherd, 
far from being a comfort to me, his rod and his staff, his rod is what he's been using to beat me up. So he says that, he says, he didn't lead me to green pastures. He drove me away, forced me to walk in darkness, not light. So he's, he's got this picture kind of, uh, Psalm 23 turned on its head. That's how, that's how bad things are between him and God. He says, God has done these terrible things. And then he spends the next, I don't know, 14, 15 verses saying all the things that God has done. And you can, you can read those, um, in your, in your Bible later, but, I wanted to skip ahead to the middle section. So in he kind of wraps up this first section by saying, I've rejected peace. I've forgotten what's good. I thought my future is gone as well as my hope because of the Lord. That God did this. That this is not, this is not my doing. This is God's doing. My future is gone. I have no hope. And it's almost as if when he says the word hope, something changes inside of him. He says, the memory of my suffering and homelessness is bitter and poison. I can't help but remember, and I am depressed. So today we might say he's got PTSD, that the memories keep flooding in. He wakes up in the night sweating because of the nightmare he just had. So that's, that's the picture. I can't, I can't get rid of these memories. The, the, what I've seen is too horrific, and it's too much for me, and now I, can't help but remember, and I'm depressed. And then he does something. He says, but I can't control my circumstances. I can't control what I've seen and what keeps flooding back upon me. But I can do this. I have control of my memory. So he says, I call this to mind. There's other things in my memory besides horror. So he says, I call this to mind. And he'll tell us what this is in a minute. But he says, so I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait on God. I'm going to, to, uh, to, to wait for God's mercy to manifest itself. So I am going to wait. I have a hope and I'm going to wait for it. So verse 22, he says, certainly the faithful love of the Lord has not ended. Certainly God's compassion isn't through. So he says that it hasn't run out, that, that God has, has too much compassion for it to ever run out. That, that it may look right now like he's all dried up, but he says, no, God never runs out of compassion. God is infinite. And as a result, he's not, he hasn't run out. And even if somehow we did use it all up, it's renewed every morning. God's faithfulness is great. It is, it is huge. Um, it is beyond our, our ability to, to even, um, contemplate. So, so he says that is, that is, um, what he summons forth from his memory, right? He can't, he can't help the things that just come by themselves, but he can bring forward the memory of what God has done in the past. So he says, I think the Lord is my portion. So this is, this is the idea that, that, um, uh, you know, you got this and you got that, but I got the Lord. So the Lord is my portion. And this was something Israel would say to itself. It's like, okay, well, the Hittites got this and, the, the Jebusites got that, but we got the Lord. So when God was handing out mercy to people, he gave some people nice lands, but he gave us himself. So, so he says, the Lord is my portion. And he says, um, I think the Lord is my portion. That when everything else has been taken away, right? You can take away the, the land of the Jebusites. You can take away the temple in Jerusalem. What you can't do is take away the Lord. The Lord is my portion. 
He can't be he can't be alienated from me. There's nobody who can cart him off to Babylon. So the Lord is my portion and I will wait for him. He says, The Lord is good to those who hope in him. There, there's kind of a little micro sandwich here. So verse 25, he says, The Lord is good to those who hope hope in him, to the person who seeks him. And then this section goes to um, goes to verse uh, 33, I think. Yeah, to 33, where he says, My Lord definitely won't reject forever. He doesn't enjoy affliction, making humans suffer. So everything he says after verse 25 is, is part of that middle sandwich. So it's like, so he says, because of that, because the Lord is good to those who wait for him. He says, it's good to wait in silence for the Lord's deliverance. Not in general. It's not generally good to, to just sit there. But he says, because the Lord is good, it's, it's good. He says, because the Lord is good, it's good for a man to carry a yoke in his youth. He should sit alone and be silent when God lays it on him. He should put his mouth in the dirt. Perhaps there is hope. He should offer his cheek for a blow. He should be filled with shame. Why? He says, because the Lord won't reject forever. Although he has caused grief, he will show compassion and measure with his covenant loyalty. So the picture he's saying is, if you've been conquered, you you know, uh, watch a bunch of five-year-olds playing, right? What are they, you know, have you ever heard a five-year-old say, say uncle, right? That's what, that's what people would do in, in, um, in the ancient world and probably today too, right? You had to, you had to submit as part of the, the, the being conquered. So they would, they would do various rituals and he's got some listed here. He says, he says, you know, put your face in the dirt. He says, um, offer your cheek for a blow. So he says, he says that, that these are ways of saying, all right, you've won. I'm submitting to you. And he says, I can be vulnerable with the Lord, right? Because he's not going to punish me just for fun. He's, you know, he, he he does not enjoy affliction. He does not enjoy making people suffer. So he says, I can, I can come before God. I can be vulnerable. I can, I can open myself up. I can say the things I've been saying. I can ask for help because that's what kind of God he is. And then, I don't know if you're a if you're the kind of person who circles things in your Bible or not. I've never been able to do that. It's one of the reasons I I have the handouts because I can write in them. But um, but in verse 32, if you if you do write in your Bible, this is a great passage to or a great verse to circle. It says, "Although he has caused grief, he will show compassion and measure with his covenant loyalty." So. Uh, this sounds kind of like the the greatest thy faithfulness. But what he's saying is there's there's something going on when you when you think about when you think about the uh, uh, if we have the idea that somehow all right I did something wrong and now God is going to punish me. So we might think well well okay where's the proportionality in in you know this terrible suffering I'm facing? But he's saying yeah but there's another place where God is not proportional. That if you're so you know if. If, if the amount of suffering that you have had to deal with, you know, you know, whatever, whatever that suffering might be, you know, the, 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 the Alzheimer's, the, the, uh, the overdose, the, the, the car accident, you know, mom and dad getting divorced when you were a kid, the, the downsizing, whatever suffering you've had to, to endure, that God doesn't give mercy according to how much suffering he's inflicted. 
He says, he gives mercy in measure with his covenant loyalty, which he's already said is infinite. So he says, yes, there is a, an amount of, of suffering that God can inflict or permit to be inflicted. And he says, yes, that, that can happen. That does happen. But he says that the, the, the compassion of God isn't measurable. That you can't, you can't put these two things in a balance and compare them. So, he says, um, he says that God shows, um, compassion, not in proportion to what, what we're suffering, but in proportion to his own nature. So, um, he doesn't enjoy affliction. And then he, uh, I'm skipping now to the final section just to give us some context. So he, he does this kind of turn back toward the, the outside layer of the sandwich. He says, okay, so in light of this insight I've had, in light of this insight, Yes, we must return to the Lord. We should lift up our hearts and hands to the, to the, to God in heaven. And he says, we are the ones who did wrong. We rebelled. So he, he gets that far. And as soon as he does, he starts thinking, yeah, but, but look, look at the, look at all the bad things that have happened. So, so, and then he carries that out for the rest of the, the chapter. So, so again, you can read that on, online, but, but he says he goes back to the outside of the sandwich, and and um, because because the suffering is so real, you know what what the Bible does not present this idea that that um, that that you can just shake it off, right? The, the Stoic idea that you know this isn't so bad, you know you can take it. God will give you strength, and you can endure it. The Bible says this is terrible. What you're having to deal with is terrible. And we're not going to sugarcoat it. We're not going to say it's no big deal. But it says, but there is also, there's also, um, grace and proportion, not to the suffering, but to God's infinite goodness. I, I was reading, um, uh, one of, one of the people I read on this, he said that if you think about, if you think about the, um, the waves that, that, that come ashore, they, they, you know, as they, as they go up, as they travel up the shore, these great big breakers become just a little, a little thin, thin layer of water that's, com- you can wade in. And he says, um, that the, the continent is, is the place where the, the huge waves break and become nothing significant. And, um, so he says, but that doesn't change the reality that they were great big breakers out at sea. And he says, in the same way, the, the sea turns, turns the, the land into little tiny bits of sand. It breaks it up into the smallest possible pieces. But that doesn't change the fact that there are mountains. So he's saying that this place, this, this place where grace meets, meets, um, suffering doesn't deny either one. But it says that it is this place where they, they meet and they, they, um, they reduce each other. They, the, the suffering, the suffering is reduced by the grace. And so, so maybe that picture is helpful to you. But, but that's, that's the idea is that this is not stoicism. This is not, well, you know, just shake it off. It is, it is, there is terrible suffering, but there's also grace. And, um, you know, if you, if you think about it, can God, can God ignore the wrong that we have done? No, God cannot. So God is a God of judgment, but as we read in the scriptures, God is love. So one is that one is something God does; the other is something God is. 
So God is love. So, so two different pictures. So, so what do we do with this? What do we do with this passage? So, um, there's one thing anybody can do. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't even have to, you know, be a churchgoer. So, so, uh, it is, it is this. He says, he says that these bad memories keep, keep intruding on me, but I can summon good memories, right? I have control. Even in the worst circumstances, when, when things are terrible, I can summon forth good memories. In, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul says, says, whatever is good and excellent and admirable, think on these things. He says, he says, use this technique, bring forward the good memories when you're in, in terrible circumstances. So, so this is something we can do. I was, I was talking to a counselor once. I was seeing a counselor and I told him that I was having some, some, some memories that kept coming back. They kept flooding back and they're very disturbing and, and troublesome memories. And he said, okay, well, and, you know, the, the details don't matter, but he said, okay, why don't you take this memory and when that, when that comes, why don't you think about this other thing that followed from it? That, that let that be your cue to, to bring up this other memory where you can now see it in a different light. You can see that, that this thing has been transformed. So, so when you have bad memories, you can summon forward good memories. But, but the important lesson, the important lesson is that God never runs out of, out of um, mercy. God never runs out of mercy. I was I was in seminary, and one of the one of the um, professors was talking about uh, in 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 Christianity. There's this idea of is there is there universal salvation? You know, will will you meet Hitler in heaven? Right? You know, there are there are people who say you know God will save everyone, and and he said I can't. I can't go there. There's not enough scriptural support for the idea that everyone is saved. But then he said this. He said, but here's, here's something important to remember. That if you imagine a set of scales and you put the cross of Jesus in one and you put the sin of the world in the other, the cross has more weight. And he says it's very easy to, to diminish the cross and say, no, this thing right here is, is, is the heavy thing. And the cross of Jesus is light. And what the writer here is saying is that God's mercy is inexhaustible. That yes, there is, there is heartache and trouble. There's pain. There's suffering in this world. But next to God's mercy, it is a small thing. And in the same way, it is small next to the cross of Christ. And I think Jesus knew how difficult it would be for us to come back to that because because the cross of Christ is in a book, it's in the history books, it's in the Bible, but the pain is today. And so what Jesus said is, I want you to celebrate a meal from time to time to remind yourself of the cross, to remind yourself, to make it real for you what it is I've done on your behalf. So we're going to be celebrating communion here in a few minutes. And so I invite you, if you... If you have any trust at all that the cross of Christ outweighs the sin of the world, then I invite you to join us in our communion meal. Let us pray. Gracious God, there is so much trouble in the world. We we see the the big problems, the the destruction and violence of war, but we experience it 
with a phone call or with a diagnosis or we experienced it long ago and the memories flood back to us whenever we whenever we aren't prepared to deal with them lord help us to remember that that suffering is real and it is not a light thing but your grace is greater help us to remember that you you are a god of judgment but you are love itself we pray this in jesus name amen